This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. You're listening now to the Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. It's Angel Rose and Ahanu on this beautiful Saturday morning, peaceful Saturday morning once again in San Diego. And we've been lucky, Ahanu, that we've had a few cloudy days. And I know the people back east are wondering, you know, why we'd be happy that there's cloudy days. But, you know, when you have sunshine every single day and it's hot, it's nice to have the clouds roll in every now and then. But... Still, there's nothing like taking a drive by the ocean, Ahana, with those waves. But today we have, we're going to have a very, very special guest on today. Her name is Chrisana Duran, and she's written this book about Bigfoot. And you'll be able to tell us more about that, though, won't you, Hanna? So say good morning. Well, good morning, everybody. And speaking of walking by the ocean, I was sure we saw Bigfoot down there by the ocean the other day. Angel Rose, this big, burly Californian surfer with hair growing out his back and on his face and on his legs and everything. Wow, he was a scary character, wasn't he? That was you, wasn't it, Ahano? I don't know about that. He he had sexual prowess. He he was on the he was on the lurk, you know. Uh, that certainly wasn't me. Yeah. And as far as the are you sure that wasn't you, <laughs> I'm certain it wasn't me. I'm certain it wasn't me. Now, we have some wonderful things going on here on the Honest to God series radio show. This is number 68 in our series. And we're keen to expand our reach. And we have a wonderful guest coming on today, Chris Anna Duran. But we want to open the invitation to all of you that may have some spiritual knowledge, may be on a quest, may have valuable information that you want to share with the rest of the world, we invite you to come on and speak with us so that we can share this wonderful time of change with everybody. And speaking of a time of change, Angel Rose's new book is out on the shelves in Amazon.com and various places on electronic format and Kindle and so on as well. And you can order it from atimeofchange.info. That's atimeofchange, all one word, dot I-N-F-O. And the reviews that book is getting are nothing short of amazing, simply because it's applicable to this time of change. And that's what we're going to be talking about today too with Chris Anna, is what's going on in the world, but especially as it pertains to humanity and Bigfoot. Let's go through another quick announcement. We have the Eight Steps to Freedom program available on 8stepstofreedom.com. That's all hyphenated and has a number 8, 8stepstofreedom.com. And Angel Rose's latest book that she's working away on feverishly, The Nature of Reality, can be pre-ordered at thenatureofreality.info. Again, hot subject and a topic we're going to cover in great detail today. And also, we will remind you at the end of our program, but just briefly to mention that every Sunday morning 
at 10 a.m. Pacific. We have a free Akashic Records online session where we invite members of the public all over the world to join us and ask questions of a spiritual or a high nature, not for personal questions, but it's free, and Engel Rose goes into the Akashic Records and answers them, and then we publish them online in the archives at worldofempowerment.com. So that's all very exciting, and it's really, really fantastic. And then one final thing before we get to our wonderful guest today. Due to popular demand, Angel Rose will be teaching people how to read the Akashic Records in an exclusive once-off training that will take place in September of this year. If you're interested, go to angelrose.com or worldofempowerment.com and just get on our mailing list because you will be notified of how to get on that training and wonderful it is going to be. Well, yes, that will be because I've been a lot of gagging about that, haven't I, Hanu? And I've had plenty of people ask me how to teach, how to learn to read those records. So, um, of course, you know me and my, my perfect source style. I had to go in and ask source how source would teach people how to read the records. So I think the way we do it is going to be a bit different than the way other people have maybe learned or other teachers out there. But I am working away on that. That's right, for sure. And don't forget to mention, too, that my beautiful Ahana was an incredible spirit artist. So if anybody wants to take a look at his work, go to ahanu.com. That's A-H-O-N-U.com. I'm so proud of him and actually wish he'd put that pastel to paper a little more often because his, he transforms, ladies and gentlemen, when he's painting. He just this aura just surrounds him, and he's just glowing. So that would be really, really great. So maybe if people could write in and encourage you, Ahana, to put a picture a week or a picture a month up online for people to bid on, perhaps something like that, because your art is just—he's a natural. You know, he's one of those people that he sits down and then. You know, 10 minutes, he's got a work of art. I don't know how he does it, but some people have the ability just to see that way, and he certainly does. So not like myself, who's very two-dimensional, but anyway, we can't all have everything, can we, Hannah? But I just notice a trend here, you know. All my work is devoted to Angel Rose. I never toot my own horn. I never mention about my own work. But now that you've mentioned it, yes, I would very much like to share a, a new little development that's coming on stream. Not only did we start the Spirit of Love project some time ago where we actually paint pictures of the spirit of love that's inside everybody. Instead of focusing on issues and things that were wrong and things that needed fixing, I was guided by spirit to focus only on the spirit of love inside people and paint it. And you can actually see those now rotating, revolving around the earth in a virtual in, on the uh, website ahanu.com, A-H-O-N-U.com. And if you go forward slash spirit of love, you can actually see those pictures rotating around the earth. That was a wonderful project, still ongoing, of course. But we have some new developments coming up too, and we will share them in due course. But that is all ongoing. And as I say, I don't usually uh, talk about that in too much detail, but ahanu.com has those details. Now, Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, 
is the name given to an ape-like creature that some people believe inhabits the forests, mainly in the Pacific Northwest region of North America. I'm not sure why it's only there, but maybe we'll find out today. Bigfoot is usually described as a large, hairy, bipedal humanoid, just like we saw on the California beaches and Rose. Most scientists discount the existence of Bigfoot and consider it to be a combination of folklore, misidentification, hoax, rather than a living animal. Because of the lack of physical evidence and a large number of creatures that would be necessary to maintain a breeding population, a few scientists, however, namely Jane Goodall, Grover Krantz, and Jeffrey Meldrum have expressed interest and some measure of belief in this creature. And our special guest today is Chrisanna Duran, and she certainly believes that Bigfoot exists and is here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Chrisanna. Are you there? I'm here, and good morning to you. <laughs> I can hardly hear you, but maybe that's oh, something at that? my end. That's is fantastic. That any better? Yes. Good. Listen, we're really excited about this topic today, and um, certainly your new book is awesome about this subject. So, could you just introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell them how you got on this subject and about your book, and then we'll proceed from there. Okay. Well, I, um, I'm i retired. I live in Missoula, Montana. Um, I've worked in Native American studies for years. I am a, uh, a Native American descendant, and my first glimpse of Bigfoot was at a Sundance in 1988, and I, it, it was barely a glimpse. Um, I had gone out... Uh, Sundance is done in a, a wilderness setting. And I had gone out late at night, you know, maybe 9 or 10, it was dark, just to look at the moon. And at a wilderness setting like that, you'll have um, a security team that just walks the perimeter of the camp. Um, and one of the security men came out, and we just, we're chatting, and he mentioned to me that we had some Bigfoot. And I asked him, well, how do you know? And he said, well, um, he could hear them moving around in the bushes at night. And <clears throat> now remember, this this was Wallace Black Elk Sundance, okay? I mean, we we're talking with Indians. And he said he could hear them moving around, and he had found where they were nesting. And and um, he he thought that um, they were interested in what we were doing. He said, you know, they're telepathic. They know everything we're, we're doing in this camp. And that was my first introduction. And, and you knew they were around, but it was fleeting. And it was a total acceptance of like, yeah, they're intelligent creatures. They're totally telepathic. They know everything we're doing, and they're watching us because they're interested in us. And um, <clears throat> I had another encounter that was extraordinary. That was in 2009. However, I am a UFO experiencer. I have been a UFO experiencer all of my life. I, um, in 1963, I was 15. 
and I had a a, a UFO uh, close encounter in Oklahoma City where I was walking down the street at dusk one night, and I was just picked up in a beam of light. And um, I had a meeting on the on the craft. I did not know what was going on. I mean, I didn't I didn't relate the things that happened to my life. I was not I was initially very frightened. Um, however. Um, in the encounter, I met a man. He was a human man. He rubbed my forehead. He was very gentle with me. He was not at all, you know, it was not a, there was no, you know, a lot of people have genetic um, probing and that type of thing. None of that happened. Uh, after, they did examine me. After the examination, I went and I, they showed, they led me into a, a room, and I sat with the man and talked with him. I had no idea it was telepathic. And um, after that encounter, I, and I had two hours of missing time at that time, when I came back, I remembered everything that happened. I, there was no, miss. I mean, it, I was gone for two hours. I know I was gone for two hours because... My parents came home and asked, it's a long story. Anyway, my parents came home, and I thought it was 8 o'clock at night. And they said, oh, no, it is 10 o'clock, and made a big deal out of how I thought it was 8. So I know I was there were, I was with them for two hours, but I remembered all of it. I went out. I lived my life. Hey, I became, yeah, Cassano, before you continue, can you describe to us what, what they were like. I mean, we're used to just hearing about the graves, you know, the, the little gray aliens, but you mentioned that this man was very human. Is that the only person you saw? No, there were some little grays. There were little grays. See, when I, they picked me up in the, okay, I was looking at the sky, and I saw this light moving, and I thought, this is 1963 in Oklahoma City, and I'm 15. I saw a light moving in the sky, but it didn't make any sound. And the only thing I could think of is it must be a helicopter because I had seen, you know, TV. And um, I thought, wow, it's really weird to have a helicopter in our neighborhood because we lived way out in the suburbs. And the light made a 90-degree turn, and I suddenly knew it was coming. I mean, I could tell it was coming right towards me, and I tried to scream, I turned around to run home, and I was paralyzed, and I couldn't scream. The next thing I knew, I was laying on a table. It was, um, and there were these lights over me, and the lights were blinking on and off. And then I came to, and there was a man standing next to me. He was wearing a brown cowl, you know, with a little, like a, it was like a, a robe, and he rubbed my forehead in a circular, you know, in a circular manner. And when he did that, he looked straight into my eyes. And I knew, and this man is not going to hurt me. This man has no ill feeling, no ill will. And I calmed down. I relaxed. And um, he left. And then there were some little grays, and they they helped me off the table. 
and guided me up to the room where he was sitting. And when I got there, he was sitting in a on a bench. It was like a bench from from a um, extended from the wall. It wasn't a chair. It was like a part of the wall. And there were three doors in the room. I could see another man in another room. And um, he, I, I did not understand at the time that the communication was telepathic. But what he, he said to me is that he said, he showed me a teacup. I know this is pretty weird, but he showed me a teacup. It was a deep violet teacup with a gold rose on it. And he said, I brought this to remind you of the love you felt when you were a child and you served your tea with my tea set. I thought, oh, my God, how does he know these things about me? Because when I was four, I had gotten a little tea set for Christmas. And... Um, Every day, I would serve tea to everyone, the entire neighborhood, and it and um, I was pilfering my mother's kitchen to get food, you know, to serve the neighborhood. And if anyone who didn't want to attend my tea party was in trouble, it was like you're going to have tea with me. And um, the way that ended up is that my mother eventually hid the food, locked me out of the kitchen. And I collected mushrooms from the backyard and fed them to everyone, which, of course, was a hospital visit, you know. So that cured me of of serving, you know, feeding everyone in the neighborhood. But he said he wanted to remind me of the love I had felt when I was a child and I served my tea. And it never dawned on me at that time. I, I was just blown away. It's like, how does he know I used to do that? And that my little tea set was one of my favorite things in the world. Well, over the years, I have realized the significance of the deep violet with a gold rose. Okay. Um, and so, what I, do you think? What do you think was the purpose of that encounter, Chrisanna? Did they explain to you was, what they were doing? It was an initiation. It was an awakening. Uh-huh. Because I lay, because when I came back, I became totally psychic. I became aware that everything comes from the life source, from, from the life force. Yes. I could see and I could feel the life force around everyone. And also, in that encounter, he said to me, you have lived many lives in the past, and you will live many more in the future. So I oh, came back. A mind-blowing thought for a young a young child. Pardon me. I, I didn't said that get must that. have been a mind-blowing thought for a fifteen-year-old. Well, you gotta, you gotta. I don't know if you've ever been in the Bible Belt. Uh-huh. Yes, parents, we have. <laughs> my parents met in ministerial school. My, uh, they both attended the Nazarene um, College to become ministers, and I, I, I honestly, I was so naive that I, I did not know what a world religion was. I thought there were Catholics, Christians, <laughs> and, 
and Jews. I thought those were all the religions there were. I had yes. absolutely no background. And and it was mind blowing. And and when I at one point I do have to tell you it's every time I think of this I just kind of go I can't I can't believe I did this. And that is that we were little Okies. I mean, we came right out of Cimarron. You know, the movie Cimarron. And um, I just had no concept that anything else existed. And, of course, when we were kids, um, we would get one we would get one dress-up outfit at Easter, and that would be our dress-up clothes for the year. And I had I had made myself a dress. It was a beautiful dress. It was a white dress with a sailor collar and red and blue uh, braid, and I had gotten a pair of red shoes, high heels, that I wore with it. And as I sat and... I thought we were just being quiet. I didn't realize this was telepathic. And I suddenly realized it, that I was barefooted. I was wearing a pair of cut-off jeans. I was wearing a ragged blouse. I mean, I had been out running the streets. I was still really a kid. And I sat there looking at my bare feet and looking at him, and I thought, I, I thought you know, I like this guy. And if I'd known I was going to meet them, I would have dressed up in my, I would have worn my white dress and my red heels. <laughs> and he started laughing. And because because clearly he was telepathically listening to me, right? So my idea of, 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 of a proper meeting would have been to wear this one white dress I had and the red heels. And he started laughing. He said, we're going to take you with us. And I said, no, you, I'm, I can't go with you. My parents will be so upset if I don't come home that I just have to go home. And they showed me a screen, and on the screen, the screen was on the wall. And <clears throat> I, I, I could see the earth on the screen, and there were clouds around it, and I knew somehow that we were above the clouds looking down at the earth. I was just stunned. And the next thing I knew, they had I was standing back down on the street. It was now totally dark. When I left, it had been dusk. It was totally dark, and I was sort of disoriented, and I was standing in the front yard of a neighbor's house, and I heard this sound, you know, this whipping sound. It was like, and I looked up, and there was a circular craft hovering over the house, and they disappeared. At that, I had not been frightened. I, I had really liked these guys. And suddenly, I realized, oh, my God, I got scared. I ran home. I hid in a closet. It was then that my parents came home found me sitting in the closet and said, what are you doing? How long have you been sitting in the closet? I said, only a few minutes. And they said, that's impossible. It's 10 o'clock at night. So anyway, that is who they were. 
the guy had he was not tall he um my sense of he was bald he did not have hair but he had kind of grayish blue eyes and they looked like human eyes you know they were not big grays you know big black eyes like the grays had and um after i came back like i said i i became aware of the life force i knew everything came from the life force i could feel the life force i could see it and i now know that basically what he did was a um third eye awakening that's why he was rubbing my forehead but i didn't understand what he had done until it was the early 90s before i really found out about the chakras so that is what they did with me um after and, uh, i came Christiana, yeah uh-huh. tell us in in reading your biography I, I must say it's a compelling read and it talks about you being a a futurist and a, you study planetary time space cycles and yes. you you do uh solar and galactic interactions and you've researched crop circles since 1993 to find correlations with energetic events do you think that it was that single ufo encounter that spawned all of this in other words what i'm trying to get at is do you think there was some element of predestiny involved in all of this that that guided you or opened up this path to you absolutely and actually much and then uh, see and then i didn't have any more contacts till 1980 1980 right then in 1980 another ufo came in 85 another one came mm. in 87 i was having huge contacts and they wow. became a really big part of my life yes so so tell us then how how did that relate to the subject of our discussion today then bigfoot tell us where the connection came and how you how it how it spawned this interest in bigfoot well <clears throat> okay um i i I'll, i don't even know where to start because i began studying the mayan calendar in 1992 i studied that calendar and the crop circles Really, it was inspired by my contacts. They actually asked me to, and I did. And in that time, I met Ida Cannenberg. Ida Cannenberg was born in 1914. Uh, she, In 1991, she published her first book, which was called UFOs and Psychic Factor. Well, <clears throat> I read that book. It was It is a mind-blowing book. Because she relates UFO contacts to initiation processes, you know, esoteric initiations. And I said, yes, that's exactly what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Ida and I became very, very good friends. And we became very good friends, and we had contacts with the same ETs. They talked to her about me. They talked to me about her. It was clear. We were sharing the same contacts. 
And a friend in 1998, a friend of Ida's, wanted to arrange a meeting with Bigfoot. So Ida said she would see if she could get any information from her ET contacts. And the um, the guy she was working with was Lee Trippett. He was a just a Bigfoot researcher. So Ida began buzzing, you know, buzzing around. By then, God, in 1998, she was in her 80s, in her mid-80s. And um, the next thing you know, this new E.T. starts talking to her. His name is Mays. And I must tell you, Ida and I, our contacts work exactly the same way. We are clairaudient. We are conscious telepaths. We are not mediums per se. They talk to us. They gave us information. And <clears throat> she was talking to Mays. And Mays referred her to a lot of research to do, and Ida did it. And um, she, was, she was asking Mays to help her. And Mays is an Arcturian, okay? He is apparently a seven-foot-tall gray, and that goes into species that I'm not going to go into yet. But she began to get all this information from Mays, and Mays told her about the history of Bigfoot, and Ida wrote it down verbatim, word for word. Right. It was totally and conscious. Just for, the, just for the benefit of our listeners, Chrisanna, let me just give a tiny background on Ida Kannenberg. She was a pioneer and researcher of UFO phenomena. She sponsored, in fact, the first Rocky Mountain UFO conference in 1980. And she was a tireless researcher. Apparently, she wrote seven books about time travelers from Atlantis. And her books include UFOs and the Psychic Factor, Project Earth from the ET Perspective, Time Travelers from Atlantis, Reconciliation, My Brother is a Hairy Man, A Son of Old Atlantis, and The Alien Book of Truth. And unfortunately, she died on May 17, 2010. But she sounds like an absolutely amazing woman who at that time when it was taboo for most people to even consider the possibility of alien encounter, there were you and her pioneering this whole area. Yes, she had her first UFO encounter in 1940. She was uh, driving on a California, uh, out by Indio, I believe, with her husband. She was 26 years old. She was with her husband, who was in the Army, and then two other men who were driving in the car, and they all saw the craft, and the men got out to find out, you know, to get a better look, see what's going on. They left Ida sitting in the car, And the next thing you know, it's two hours later, and the moon is flying away. Okay. Um, She, in about 1978, 77, they began talking to her. They. It is the time travelers and the Arcturians. And she she, she, she was totally conscious. She, neither one of us ever had genetic experiments or abductions. You know, um, they picked me up in a beam of light, and they picked Ida up that time. But I think in both instances, the idea was to sort of 
awaken and initiate the energy and prepare us for what would follow. And then in 1980, she was working with uh, uh, Leo Sprinkle, who was a uh, psychologist. I think he was a clinical psychologist at uh, the University of Wyoming. He was working with UFO experiencers, and she helped him sponsor the first conference. It was the Rocky Mountain UFO Conference um, in 1980 at the University of Wyoming. And they did that for, I think they did that conference for 20 years or 21 years. And when, in, I, I don't remember the exact date, it was around 2000, 2001, uh, Leo Sprinkle awarded Ida um, a Lifetime Achievement Award. She was an extraordinary woman. She was very practical, very down-to-earth. She argued with the contacts all the time. (laughs) And one of the things, well, okay, uh, we're getting way off the track, but she was extraordinary. And um, she was very, very real, and I learned. We became very close friends. And I really learned that when Ida said, it's like this, it was like that. I mean, she was had an, an earring ability to deliver information that was accurate. Um, and so, so she... Kasana, so, yeah, go ahead. I, thank you for that. Yeah, we will look her up more, but I want to make sure that we stay on task okay. with, with you today and with what we're doing and so... We will, Hannah mentioned Ida, and we will look her up more and maybe revisit that again at some point. Okay, but I do want to get back to, uh, I have a few questions as you're speaking to me, okay? And and one is, I do want to get back to the, um, obviously these ETs wanted you to discover or um, know about Bigfoot in terms of its connection to our history so I, I'd like to know why they would guide you in that direction and also into the other history that you've discovered about our Earth and Atlantis even. So what's what's the big purpose for all of this? And um, especially, you know, I'm a little, I myself have my own little concerns about the future of Earth. So could you kind of, if you know, give us a little bit of information uh, if they have told you anything about the Earth and why uh, our history, us knowing about our history and Bigfoot is so important to us today. Well, um, Mays gave Ida over 150 pages of information that included, and he said, Bigfoot is a sibling species. Bigfoot is here for a reason. Bigfoot does a very, very important job. And in order to understand and accept Bigfoot, we have to understand and accept our own history, okay? Because the history we've been given just simply is is um, just not true. It, it, in other words, the the other thing that May said is that uh, Zachariah Sitchin, for instance, uh, Ida talked to him about um, the Sumerian gods. And and um, May said, well, it's largely true, but what they overlook is that 
there were already other ETs on the planet. In other words, right. we this planet had been um, colonized and civilized millions of years before the Sumerian gods showed up. Yep. Yeah. It's true. So in order to really understand our role as human, as a human species, because what I learned, I, Ida, when she started writing this, she said, oh, my God, if she had known, she never planned to write about Bigfoot. She only did it as a favor for Lee Trippett. She said if she had known how involved this is, she would have taken notes from day one. And when And then Ida died, her family gave me, permission to republish her book, and in February, I sat down to write an introduction. All I was going to do is write an introduction. And, say, and the reason I did this, I decided to do this in February, is because in February, Melba Ketchum announced and published a um, DNA study of Bigfoot that confirmed exactly what Mays had told Ida. Bigfoot it is a sibling species. Um, I'd... Uh, Melba Ketchum's DNA study found that 15,000 years ago, Bigfoot mated with modern humans, and there were DNA mutations that took place at that time. Well, in order for Bigfoot to mate with modern humans, it had to have a human root, okay? And and Melba Ketchum found that in the mitochondrial, the maternal DNA, but she she said the the uh, hominin, which is the whole uh, genus of chimpanzees and anthropoids, um, is not in our databases. She said she can find the mitochondrial modern human DNA. She couldn't find another segment of the DNA. Well, that's exactly what Mays told her. Mays explained that even Homo erectus, that the Sumerians um, worked with, what had already been prepared for a human evolution and actually came from a branch of the Australopithecus, a far more ancient root. Um, Mays alludes to that talking to Ida. It's not the original Australopithecus, it is a branch of Australopithecus that produced um, Homo erectus because Homo erectus was already being seeded um, as a human evolution. So when the Sumerians came in, they were just basically manipulating what was already here and what had already been seeded. And that is what Melba Kelchum's findings do not state that exactly, but she says they cannot find that other sequence. And Mays said that they used Homo sapiens, they used human DNA, that Bigfoot's human DNA is identical to our human DNA. The main difference is ratios. Like, for example, let's say we have a 70% ratio of human DNA and Bigfoot has 40%. Right, and that is exactly Melba Ketchum actually made a statement almost identical to that in an interview. She said the only difference is the amount of human DNA. That's the only difference between us and Bigfoot, and that's exactly what May said. 
and he explained where that missing root, came, you know, branch from Australopithecus came from, and that Bigfoot had been engineered, or not engineered, that's a really bad, ugly word. He was developed on Arcturus. He was brought here to serve a specific purpose, and that he serves a very, very important purpose that we just don't even imagine how important Bigfoot is. And um, what is that, Prasanna? What is the purpose? Two purposes. Yes. Yeah. One is that apparently the Elohim, the um, who were like the really, really, really ancient um, uh, parent race. Almost, they're like an angelic parent race. Had used to, had once lived on this planet, and then they left. And, as I understand it, about three hundred, four hundred thousand years ago, they were thinking of returning to this planet. But they, so they, they introduced Bigfoot into the environment because he can go places and he can do things. And he's very, very sensitive to earth conditions. So Bigfoot basically monitors the planet, and then they monitor Bigfoot, and, and Bigfoot gives them constant readings on what is going on with the planet, on the condition of the planet. And um, the other thing, Mays also explained that Bigfoot, the Bigfoot soul group, is the same as the human soul group. In other words, you have species with different, you know, soul roots and origins. The Bigfoot soul group is the same as the human, modern human soul group. Um, that in case of an all-out catastrophe, that Bigfoot is a reserve gene pool who's acclimated to this planet. And it was at at that point, when, when Melba Ketchum's study was published, I still didn't have that much interest in Bigfoot, but I was going to publish, I was going to republish Ida's book because what Melba found, what Ketchum found was so on point with what Mays had told Ida. And I sat down to write it. I wrote a 17-page introduction. And then I remembered what Mays had said about in order to really understand Bigfoot you have and accept Bigfoot, you have to understand and accept your own history because we are sibling species. And so I began writing the history uh, that I, I that I believe is necessary to understand how Bigfoot and how modern human have evolved on the planet together. And uh, amazingly, I, a friend I, of mine... That's what I want to know, Krasana, but I think Ahana needs to take a quick station break here, so hold that thought okay. just for two minutes. Okay. Okay. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu. 
Yes, thank you very much for being with us today. We are speaking about Bigfoot with Chrisana Duran. And what a riveting subject this is because we're finding out things about the history of humanity and the origins of all of that that Zachariah Sitchin and the Sumerian tablets and Homo erectus and all of that. Yeah, now we, we'd really like to know who made the human body? You, you did articulate there, Chrisana, about how Bigfoot is the, let's say, the, 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 the tool of the Arcturians to monitor the planet. But where right. did the human body come in uh, that we know of now today? Who, who made this human body? Okay, modern humans evolved out of Lemuria. It was the Lemurians. However, I mean, there have been a number of other ET species on this planet who have done their own breeding. Um, but the 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 elders of Arcturus are basically a are, they are a human species, and they are like the proto-human species. And the way I understand it is that the human evolution is simply part and parcel of the universe. In other words, no one just, you know, uh, waved a wand on the sixth day and said, now I am making humans to look like me. They evolved. They had their own evolution. And and the species, see, what we what has been missed in our society to a huge degree is the role that species play. Species are genetic evolutions, and there are numerous, um, there are, each species has a role. Like species don't just appear for no good reason. They are part and parcel of the, let's call it, of intelligent design. And, um, I think I I wrote a little bit about Francis Crick, who discovered the DNA molecule. He was one of the co-discoverers of the DNA molecule back in in '53, I think it was. He he won the Nobel. Uh, he was a Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize with uh, for his research. And when he discovered the DNA molecule, he said, "Life on Earth." could not have originated here because the DNA of all life on this planet is too consistent to have just erratically emerged. You know, there was a pattern of all life. And he developed a theory called panspermia, which is how life could have, the, the design of life, the seeds of life, could have been disseminated um, in comets, that it came from the cosmos. And now th- we're talking a Nobel laureate who developed the theory of panspermia, and, and NASA is actually doing a 20-year research project. It's now, the study is now called astrobiology, and basically you have certain designs of life. And the form that life takes, will vary with environmental conditions. And remember when uh, uh, 
the um Oh, what was it? Uh, I can't remember. It was a, a an amoeba, I think, that uh, thrived on arsenic was announced um, several years ago. That discovery came out of the of NASA's astrobiology uh, uh, project, and it's like life, the form of life, originates. There's a cosmic intelligent design. The form of life, it'll vary depending on on the conditions, environmental conditions, probably a lot of other factors. It will emerge simply because that's the design and the order of the cosmos. And, um, and that is, I think, that is the only explanation I can give you for the Elohim, who are basically the parent species of humans. I'm sure there are other. There may be other human species in other galaxies. Yeah, you know how in Fishkin's work, he, uh, you know, a lot of people think that it's the Anunnaki who created the human, and the Anunnaki altered our our genes and digressed us so that we didn't have the same abilities that we once had. Is there any truth to that? Absolutely. Okay, so here's what happened, and I go into that in the book. And 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 May said yes, they came here, they did they did alter our evolution, but the evolution was already in place, and that is the part that Sitchin misses. Sitchin is very much a Hebrew. He really, re, you know, he said, you know, these these. Uh, Sumerian gods were the origin, the originators of the of the um, human species, um, and they are our. We are their chosen people. I mean, he really did take that viewpoint, and it isn't it wonderful what he did, what they did for us. And and my answer is no, it's not wonderful what they did for us, because we were already evolving here. The I am Native American. The Arcturians say that Native Americans are the most similar to them. Okay, we and we also, by the way, I'm not going to go into all the DNA um, information. The the um, so there is truth, but what they did is they took the existing genome, the existing human that was already evolving on this planet, the the Anunnaki. And there weren't just one, there were several of them um, who did this. And they basically altered our evolution to make it workable for them. And the Bible is very clear about it. Um, first of all, you have Genesis 1, that's the first creation. On the sixth day, man and woman were made, Right. And then you go to Genesis 2. Read this very carefully. Genesis 2 starts out and it says, oh, yes, well, the seeds were all here and we had all these plants, we had all the animals, we had all these wonderful things, but there was nobody to till the soil. The next thing you know, this Lord who's done a whole litany on all the inventory of the planet goes out and he gets Adam and Eve and he... he, he creates them a second time. Well, that is where the Anunnaki came in. 
Now, you can call them Anunnaki. There's a lot of um, – that term is very deceptive uh, because it's just been completely um, misunderstood. But the point is there was no one to till the land, to the soil. It says it right there in the beginning of Genesis 2. And then Adam and Eve get created, and um, and they they go off and they till the soil, right? So there's your second creation, the Lord. That that Lord wasn't Anunnaki, but then you go on down Genesis, and and there's another Lord who's very upset because these um, humans are evil. And Sitchin says, and I believe he's absolutely right, because we already had the the, the human DNA. So when the when the Anunnaki mixed theirs, who they were a human race, by the way, they weren't just a bunch of reptilians. Suddenly, we it, it was like we took off like rockets. We looked like the Anunnaki. We became very brilliant, and we're getting down to the real point here. And so the the Lord then decides to uh, allow the great deluge. Okay, there really was a great deluge. It did not happen five thousand years ago. It happened eighteen to fifteen thousand years ago. It was huge. I live up here in Montana. the The glacial floods were unbelievable. I mean, you just you have to go see the coolies in Washington State. Uh, to understand what it meant. We had a glacial flood that got blocked here in in Missoula, Montana, and when the ice melted and that water was released, it flooded, traveled at an estimated speed of 65 miles an hour all the way from Missoula, Montana into Washington State and Oregon. It cut bedrock. It took everything with it. It deposited boulders from Montana in Washington State, and and the and the weird shapes that this water cut into the bedrock are called coolies. That's how the coolies were formed. Had a similar thing in Scotland. It was enormous flooding, and that is when Big, Bigfoot's DNA mutated. Um, and then. That continued. So are you saying? So are you saying that the Anunnaki upgraded the human? Oh, they altered them. And the, and the was it an upgrade, altered. not a downgrade? Mm, it depends on what you think is an upgrade. Because I, <laughs> what I was, yeah, it's what I'm getting. What I was getting ready to tell you is, I ha- a friend of mine brought a book to my attention this week. It's called Pandora's Seat. And basically what happened is our civilization, well, get back to, uh, I'll follow the storyline just a little bit. So we had these incredible earth changes. We had an exploding asteroid that spread debris over four continents, four continents, all the way from California, Central America, North America, across Europe, and into Syria. And that was 12,800 years ago. That The study of the uh, debris from this um, asteroid that dates it to 12,800 years ago was published in May. Um, and that was real. It was 
that was an earth change that you just, I, it, it's a whole chapter on what it did. Because these were hunter-gatherers, right? Bigfoot is a hunter-gatherer. Mm-hmm. And so you had these huge floods. The asteroids set fires so intense that it formed nanodiamonds in the in the uh, uh all across North America, it destroyed the Clovis civilization. So that means you've got these huge floods down in the lowlands. The, fla- the fauna and flora were just devastated. These people mm-hmm. had to get up out of the uh, uh, flood range, out of the flood plains. They were mm-hmm. hungry. It took all their food. Is this the same flood, Chrisanna, as the flood of the Bible that you're talking about now? Yes. And what happened, how they got the flood in the Bible mixed up is that they, the Christians and the Jews counted time from Adam's, from the creation of Adam. So, and they based it on the lifespans of his descendants. So based on counting backwards on the lifespans of of Adam's descendants, they said, "Well, the world had to be had to have been created around 4,000 BC, and yes. then there was the flood." Well, no, there was no huge deluge in 4,000 BC. The deluge, the huge, devastating deluge, when Bigfoot's DNA mutated, was 18 to 15,000 years ago. Okay. Right. Yes, and that would tie so in it, with Sitchin's work also in terms of his mm-hmm. dating. It really happened. Yes. It was huge. So then yes. what happened? Now, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. I'm puzzled by this before you go into detail about, about it. In terms of the Bible story, and I'm only mentioning the Bible, not that we believe in it, but that it's a reference to uh, events as you describe. And some you have to take it for, for what it is, whether it's absolutely true or not, uh, whether it's written right. allegorically or whatever. But in any case... Sitchin's work tended to focus on the area of the Middle East and the origins of humanity out of that area and the Garden of Eden and that kind of thing, perhaps North Africa or present-day Iraq or Iran in that general vicinity. Now, you're talking about Bigfoot and various um, versions of humankind, let's say, coming out of the Americas, the American Northwest and the right. continent of Europe. Uh, is, is that... When they talk about the origins of mankind, are you saying that it's happened all over the world or in specific areas of the planet? It happened all over the world. It was... Okay. It was um, it, on my website, I do a whole sequence of, of, the, the, of, of, of the modern continental formations. In other words... Um, I start the the first island of Mu was between Malaysia and Africa, okay, and when that and 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 it's in the geological record. I I track the geological record, all right. Um, so there was the earliest anthropoids were found in Africa 22 million years ago, and. The the Anunnaki, I'll just call them Anunnaki. Uh, we need a better name for them, but I don't want to go into all that now. They focus 
on the Middle East because that's where they were based. They weren't out here writing about Native Americans. So then Zachariah Sitchin sees that, oh, look, there are these phenomenal structures in Native America, and he tries to put the Anunnaki there. But in fact, um, there was a much older civilization there. The Anunnaki came in. It was an open planet. It's like a nat- the Earth was a nature preserve. It was no one owned it. No one totally controlled it. The Anunnaki came in. They poached, basically poached the human evolution that was already in process, altered it to serve their purposes. The uh, natives of the Pacific Northwest. There's, they they have stories about this, about when the sky people came in and they tried to put them to, to force them into slavery, and mm-hmm. the bear and the dog taught them how to fight them off. The 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 Arcturians and the Syrians were very strongly ensconced in Native America. We are their yes. descendants, and um, Native Americans tend to have very different kinds of UFO contacts than the European races do. Um, Is that because they have a different origin and they're being monitored or connected to a different race of people? That's exactly what I think it is. All right, that's interesting. Now, let's just take a look. Let's just take a look for a second, Chrisanna, at the big picture. And I I know in your book you, you look at the... 24,000-year Earth-Solar Galactic Cycle, the big Hindu Yuga, the great year, yes, the right. Mayan calendar. Yeah. Now, in, in, what I want to ask you is, are we at the end of that great cycle? And does it just continue around again? In other words, are we heading for a golden era? And then will also that come back around into a time of cruelty and oppression and depression and depravity and all that, and then circle around again to a golden era? I mean, is, is this like a never-ending cycle, or is there it some is end to it? It is cyclic, but if you think of it as a spiral, you're, not going, you're, you're going around the cycle in a spiral right. that it's, it's never exactly at the same place. But that 24,000-year cycle is the key to the whole dang shooting match. And I've got all these posted on a website called Bigfoot Human Ancestors um, dot com. And I've got that that graphic there. And the key, the key, um, do you know who Yogananda is? Yes, we do. He founded the self-realization. Yeah, we're actually in San Diego at the moment where his his self-realization center is right there on the coast we visited from time to time. Right. Well, Yogananda's teacher was Yukteswar, Y-U-K-T-E-S-W-A-R. Yukteswar's teacher was Babaji. Babaji was quite a guy. And Babaji asked Yukteswar to get the correct dates for that 24,000-year cycle. Right. Yuxwar published it in 1894 in a book called The Holy Science. And he determined that the the cycle began, a new cycle began 
13,501 years ago, okay, which happened to be exactly when Bigfoot's um, DNA was mutating. And that when the cycle begins, the, a new cycle begins when the huge cycle reaches, when the long cycle reaches its zenith. Now, here's what it's based on. This is really interesting. This really, <laughs> this just explained so much. The whole idea is that the Earth is in a, has a twin star, a dual. Yuxwa uh, calls it a dual. And that the dual and the, or the twins, I'll just call it a twin. The twin star and our sun, the, the solar system, um, are in a intertwined orbit around a center. He called it the great center. The Sanskrit word was Vishnu Nabi. And that when the Earth is closest to that center, we are we are uh, subject to very high levels of magnetic, universal magnetism is what he called it in 1894. What we would call it is radiation. We are, we, we are and, and there's, a, there's actually a lot of science that backs this up. Now, you know, in the last 20 years, we have science. 1894, it was just Yuxwa figured out what it must be, and I have found that his dates are phenomenally accurate, okay? So you re uh, the new cycle starts at the zenith of a golden age, and then the cycle is it, divided into two 12,000-year cycles. One 12,000-year cycle is a night, and the other 12,000-year cycle is a day. So in 13501, we were heading into, we had reached the zenith, and we were entering a night cycle. Now, during this night cycle, when we are moving away from the great center, um, everything goes to sleep. It's like really a night of the earth. Um, and... Yuxwa called it mental virtue declines. This totally ties in with the with the Hopi accounts. It tie, it ties in with the um the Hindu accounts with um the Greek accounts, you know, Plato used a great year of, of twenty four thousand years. And he and he, the way I, I quote Plato in the book where he's talking about that great year and the stations that are, that we go around. And <clears throat> so we began to go into a decline. We reached the darkest moment, which we would call midnight, um, in 499. Now, in 499, Rome collapsed. Um, the world went into this phenomenal dark age. It just kind of came to a standstill with inertia, okay? And at that point is when mental virtue was at its absolute lowest point. Then we begin to awaken. And we go into a new, we enter the day cycle, which is the next 12,000-year cycle. And we go, it, it, it's, like, it's just like 
it's like a, a diurnal, a 24-hour period, except it's in 24,000 years. And it comes out, I'm positive it came out of Egypt originally, because the 24-hour cycle with a base 12 number is Egyptian in origin. In other words, our day that we use, the 24 hours, I believe, is a mirror of a microcosmic mirror of the larger 24,000-year cycle. All right, so we in, in 1899, we began, we came into a, we came into a new yuga cycle. Remember, we had been climbing to a new high since 499, so we're now 1,500 years into the cycle of awakening, and that was 1899. And look at what happened in the world since 1899. We have just accelerated at such a phenomenal speed. And it will continue. It is not going to stop. What science tells us, what we know from NASA, is that the Earth makes an orbit around the entire the Earth. It's the solar system orbits through the galaxy every 225 to 250 million years. And in that time, we we it's not just like a racetrack. You you go through periods where you go up above the galactic equator and then you'll come down south of the galactic equator. You know, you'll go up as north, down as south. And when we are in the galactic when we are in the band of the galactic equator, we're protected from a lot of radiation. Uh, because a lot of debris collects there, and it and it protects us against um, other, you know, ab- against higher levels of radiation. As we move out of the galactic equator, north of it, we're suddenly subject to higher radiations. Now, this all happens over long, long periods of time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, let me tell and you it what sounds amazed- like it's, it- a guy by the name of Santos Bonacci has done a lot of great work in terms of understanding these great cycles. And he, he likens, he actually attributes all of the Earth's religions to the, their origins in astrology and the 12 the signs of the zodiac as we move through the cosmos. But I want to ask you, Chrisanna, then, what, what would be the spiritual purpose of all of this? I mean... You know, I'm, I'm trying to get a grip on what you're saying. I can understand the, the physics of it, the physical aspect of it, the cosmology of it. I can understand the, the nature of cycles. But what would be a spiritual purpose to all of that? What, what, what's, what's it for? Well, my thought on that is we need to define what is spirit and what is spiritual. My definition of spirit is a Vedantic Um you know the 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 Vedas, the Vedantins of India. As it turns out, you know these ETs have had this, or these contacts have had an enormous influence in my life. And I'm 65, and in the last five years, I have realized that everything I believe, all the things I have learned, all the experiences I have, track right back down into the Vedantins. Now the Vedantins conceive of, you know, um, that the pure spirit is, is the Atma, a, you know, and it has no mass. 
It has no physicality. It is completely um, independent of the physical world. And the physical world, even the soul has a certain physicality to it because it has energy. Anything that has energy that exists in space and time is, is has an aspect of the physical world in it. And the booty, B-U-D-D-H-I, is like the soul. It's like the high mind of the soul. And, um, and it does have a physicality to it. So in the truth, spirituality is, is completely beyond space and time. It has it is it is eternal. It is it is um, pure knowing, pure sentience, and it directs the development of the high mind or the soul, which then interacts with the the mind, the intellect as we know it, and different levels of mind, and it is. Ultimately, the objective is is expansion of the knowing and and the and the soul and the spirit force through experience, <laughs> and that is my definition of what true spirituality is. And the soul is a vehicle for the spirit; that they're not the same, and so. You emerge, and the way the Hindus see it is that they have um, very long, huge cycles um, of time, and 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 at periodically, the physical world sort of dissipates. But when when that happens, the mind, the spirit, and the knowledge continues to exist it doesn't the knowing and the memory and the knowledge and then when it's at a in a at a at a particular point the physical world will begin begin to manifest again and it comes from mind and it's it's very much uh helena blavatsky taught this principle and this doctrine very accurately I am probably a Blavatskian, um, but her teachers were Vedantins. Like Omorye was a Vedantin master um, of the Hindu Vedantas. And I'm very much uh, aligned with Blavatsky. And and at the end of the day, I, I realized all these things that the Vedantins talk about, that's what I already believe. It's already there. It's been part of my structure. Um, so so that's the spiritual purpose of it. Um, the purpose of a species, because now when we're talking species, we're talking physical creatures, which is a whole different evolution than the soul or the mind. And um, and I believe that the species, various species, you know, you'll incarnate in various species. You'll go through incarnational cycles. I believe that the physical world and the species are instruments for evolution of the soul, 
which then contributes to the knowledge and wisdom of the true spirit. How does uh-huh. that? <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that that's great. Now I want to ask you though, in terms of where the say the teachings of the Course in Miracles, they would say that everything is illusion. The entire thing is an illusion, and you yes. know here we are studying 24,000-year cycles and big cosmic cycles and so on. Where do you stand with that view, that it's all just illusion anyway? Well, um, the Vedantas, Vedantins call the illusion maya. That's what it means. Yogananda, in his book, talks about there are certain times of day to meditate where you, you can see through, you can penetrate the illusion. All right, and or the Maya, and and Maya literally means illusion, and so you you come out, you're in your soul journey. You you um, or you come out, you're you are a pure spirit. You create, you develop, evolve the soul, and then the next thing you know, you're in these species and you're incarnating. And you're on the wheel of life. It's like a constant turning of the wheel of life. And that is all an illusion. It is. I absolutely agree with it. And I'll tell you, I agree with it because I have had UFO experiences. And I have seen how that illusion can be manipulated and altered and changed. Um, but the the fact that you're in it means that it's something you have not yet mastered. When you master that illusion, you will then be the master of it, and you will no longer be caught up in it. So yes. that is I can, how I can it understand. Is. Yes, I can understand how that would be a wonderful thing, that's and certainly that's how you get out of the cycles. Angel Rose just said. Now we only have a few minutes left, and I don't want to miss the opportunity for our listeners to be able to get hold of your book, Chrisanna. So can you tell us how they can contact you? Give us your website and we can get your book. Okay. My website is BigfootHumanAncestors.com. You know, you just www.BigfootHumanAncestors.com and you can get the book there. And I have all the images from the book are posted on that web page so that if anyone wants to uh, get a better look, it's all there and available. Right. We'll certainly go there and get a copy of it because it sounds very, very comprehensive. And in the short time that we've had today, we really haven't been able to go into as much detail as we would like. But one question that I still have hanging over me, and I want to use it by way of bringing it all back full circle and it's about Bigfoot and you did say that Bigfoot was here to monitor the planet on behalf of the Arcturians so how is Bigfoot doing and what you know is, is, is he reporting good news or bad news um, Bigfoot is greatly endangered his habitat is being eroded yes um, by civilization um, the pollutants of our civilization are affecting everything on this planet. And May yes. said that they have already removed some of the Bigfoots and taken them back to Arcturus, but some of the ones who were born here 
want to stay and help save their own planet because this is their home, this is their planet, they are an intelligent species, they are highly psychic, they are highly sensitive to earth conditions, and frankly, Bigfoot's scared of us. <laughs> yes. And do, we, you think do you think the Arcturians, or indeed any race of E.T., might come in and, re- let's use the word rescue, or interfere or stop the the pollution and the degradation? Nope. Not a chance. And Why is I, that I the talk, case? I talk about that in Chapter 6 called Species of Time, where an Arcturian woman talked to me. She appeared in my room, in my living room, in a beam of light. I swear to God, they use light technology. She showed up in my living room. Last May, May of 2012, we had a long conversation, and then she later told me, she said, this is your, she said, we, the the true storm that on this planet is the human presence, that we now face the same challenge that every species who has gone before us has faced and that we must come to terms with it, that it is our test, and they are not going to come in and 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 stop that. We are going so, to handle it ourselves. So in, in terms of progress then and evolution, really what you're saying is that we haven't progressed at all. We, haven't, we may have evolved some technology and some abilities and some control over our environment, but in terms of the mastering the illusion and in terms of mastering the 24,000 year cycle you're saying that we haven't made any progress at all well really we haven't and the reason we haven't one of the main reasons is because when we entered this 10,000 you know this when we began that's why when we began to go into the sunset of the dark night that is when we had the Tower of Babel I put that entire episode in the book. And the Lord very clearly said, and it was the Sumerian lords, right? It was the biblical lords, said that after trying to destroy the earth with a flood, that didn't work. He then says, okay, now, the, and, and I go into a study that was done that shows in 15,000 years ago, there was one language spoken in Europe and Asia there really was one language. It is a fact. Several studies show it. And the Lord said, they all speak one language, and now they can do anything they want because humans were building, they had built a great city and a, and a, and a tower. And he says, they cannot be restrained. Let's go down and confound their language and scatter them abroad. And suddenly, yes. our civilization disappeared. The civilization that was developing disappeared. Let, let's downstep that, because I really want to try and get to the core of this. Downstepping that now to the level of governments and, say, the One World Order, for example, are you saying that we are now basically living out that, that destiny where we are in conflict with each other and there's 
there's no hope for it because we've been confounded uh, as the, from the time of the the Tower of Babel. Um, we are, we we were given a civilization that was convenient for the Hebraic Lord. He wanted us to behave in a certain way. He created his chosen people. And the global elite are his descendants. Bottom line, I go into that in the book. I actually have a lineage from the Greek Hesiod. And it was it, what the point I make is that Zeus and Jehovah functioned very similarly, but I think they were competing gods, and each one of them created their own aristocracy to manage us poor common humans, meaning the Native Americans, right? And the civiliza- our civilization did not develop for the benefit of our species. It developed for the convenience of the Lord managing our species. It is not hopeless at all because we are now awakening and the global lead are more and more evident we can have conversations like this and say, you know what they did at the Tower of Babel? And you understand it. I am not going to be burned at the stake for saying it. Right? So we are making humongous um, advances because now our mental virtue is awakening. Our psychic abilities are awakening. Our psychic abilities were literally switched off. We don't have time to go into that but they were literally switched off because these global elite and their parent gods really don't want a bunch of psychic humans checking yes. them out, you know. Yes. So now, it you is mentioned- not, we have, there's abundant hope. We are yes. in a cleansing. It must yeah. be cleansed. Christiana, I'm really sorry to have to cut across you there, but you mentioned we don't have time to go into that, and unfortunately that is the case. We do have to just do a quick recap here. We spoke about your own UFO experience as a child, your telepathic communication, the third eye awakening that you experienced. You spoke about your good friend Ida Kannenberg and her books, the DNA of Bigfoot, we went into the history of humanity, we spoke about Zechariah Sitchin and the Sumerian tablets, Homo erectus, that Bigfoot has 40% human DNA, that Bigfoot was developed on Arcturian for, to monitor this planet, that Bigfoot's soul group is the same as the human soul group, we spoke about the human body being developed out of Lemuria, we talked about the Anunnaki, the Bible story, the earth changes, you mentioned about Babaji and Yukteswar and Yogananda and the long count calendar. God, we went through such a huge amount of information here today. We talked about the Vedas and the spiritual purpose of it all and the expansion of the spirit and the soul being the vehicle for the spirit, the Tower of Babel, and now we're just closing with the future and the awakening. Unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. We have run out of time. But I do want to point people towards your book because we're going to get a copy of it too, BigfootHumanAncestors.com. And is there a telephone number or an email address or do you direct everybody to that uh, that website? Um, My email is, I have an email there. 
so people can go in and email me uh, at the contact button, and um, okay. there will be other but there are links to my other websites to my websites with the crop circles and the predictions, and okay. with the time star. All right, we have and to come I back only to want to make I have to time. say one thing: forty percent human DNA was just an example. It wasn't a definitive. It's forty percent. It's just it was an example of a ratio. I want to be right, clear yeah, about gotcha. that. Okay, we have to bring it to a close there. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Do remember uh, the uh, free group Akashic Records online tomorrow morning, and we will be I back will. again next week. So we wish to thank you. And thank you for listening to Ahanu and Angel Rose on the Honest to God series. Salon, August Benacht, they live galere. Thanks, Christana. Thank you, guys. I thoroughly enjoyed this, and I'll be at your group tomorrow. Fantastic. This is the Art of Living Well Radio Network. Radio to inspire enlightened living. The Honest to God series with Anne Gail Rose and Ahanu.